Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I wish I could have been translated. You guys could have figured out the message for yourselves. In the cross, in the cross, be my glory ever. I hope that's the prayer of our hearts this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want to read to you the first three verses. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Amen. The Apostle Paul had to deal with numerous topics in the first 14 chapters of this epistle. But when he gets to the 15th, he says, Moreover, putting aside the first 14 chapters, listen to me now. Brethren, I preached the gospel to you. I hope you remember it. And you should be established in it. And you'll be saved by it if you can remember it. For the gospel that I preached unto you was first of all. How that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. First of all is Jesus Christ dying for our sins according to the scriptures. That's what I want to preach to you this morning. But I also want to turn you to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. And see if we can't find the sentiments of that last hymn that we sang. In the cross, in the cross, be my glory ever expressed by this same apostle. And again I say to you and beseech you that you would put on the new man in your thoughts right now and put off the old man and glory in what I'm saying. The one hates what I'm saying, and the one loves. Galatians 6.14, But God forbid, God forbid, that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. And that single verse says more about the whole gospel of Jesus Christ than any verse I can think of. Because in it is the cross of Christ, the source of glorying for a true saint. But there are also two crucifixions made there. The world to us and us to the world, all in one text. I pray God that Galatians 6.14 will be the words and sentiments and music of your heart when we leave each other this morning. Let us pray. Holy Father, Lord God of hosts, and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, I beseech Thee, I beg of Thee, O Lord, for the sake of Thy holy child Jesus, and for the honor and glory of what He did for us, on the cross of Calvary, 
that you will bless my words to be of instruction and comfort to each of these hearers. And, O Lord, that you would quicken their affections, their heart, and their minds, that they might be attentive, and that they might rejoice, and that they might glory in these things also. I ask this not for our glory, and not that we should glory in anything but the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. O Lord, we have many thanksgivings. We have many petitions. But we set them all aside for these few minutes that we might consider the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Have mercy upon us. We have the noblest of subjects. We have assembled for thy honor and glory and to be taught of thee. Now bless us, I beseech thee, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. If Jesus Christ and his cross is your source of glorying, the world is nothing to you, and you are nothing to the world. Because the cross of Christ will separate you from the world, from your standpoint and from their standpoint. What a text. When we consider the cross of Jesus Christ, there's a lot that could be said. We could approach it from many different angles. But I have my angle for this morning. And it's limited, obviously. But we'll cover a lot. I hope that as we study the cross of Christ, that we'll see the fulfillment of the words of the third stanza of the second hymn that we sang that said, for those who don't fully appreciate sin and evil, nor think it's evil great, we'll see by the sacrifice made to pay for your sins just how great sin is, just how horrible sin is, by what was necessary to pay for it. The price of anything is the value of that thing, the price paid for it. And the God that paid the price is a God that doesn't make mistakes. He had to satisfy the infinite demands of holy justice, and he did so in the cross of Christ. When we read an expression in the New Testament where the apostle would say, thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift, It's only unspeakable when we fully understand and glory in the cross of Christ. Otherwise, we read that sentence and we think, what's so unspeakable about it? The flesh wants you to think that. But it is unspeakable. I shall do my best to speak it, but it's unspeakable. Because I can't even describe some of what he paid for you and for me. Now men love to glory in other men's accomplishments and in their own accomplishments. We have our heroes set before American citizens on screen, in newspapers, at athletic endeavors, and we glory in their accomplishments. But they have never accomplished anything. Never anything. And those are absolutely true words compared to what we're about to consider. Amen. 
And the apostle would tell us to consider Jesus. Hebrews 3.1. Consider Jesus. Hebrews 12.3. And so we want to consider Jesus and what he did. Jesus of Nazareth, the man Christ Jesus, a man like you and me, with a human spirit, a human soul, a human body. What he did for you and for me, the cross of Christ. I'm excited. Amen. I'm glorying in it. And I hope you will with me as we consider four points about what Jesus did for us. First of all, the obvious point. He suffered physically. And I don't want to spend much time on it. We're very familiar with the physical and obvious aspects of what Jesus did on the cross. Let me just mention them to you. He was scourged by the Romans. To be scourged was to have a whip applied to your back that was often believed to be a cat of nine tails that the British used, thanks to the Romans, that would have nine strands of leather with bits of metal tied into the leather. He was scourged by the Romans. He had a crown of thorns planted on his head, mocking him. We don't want to get to that mocking yet. We want to look at the physical aspect. But that crown of thorns was put on his head and driven into his scalp with a reed, a stick. The Old Testament tells us in Isaiah 50 and verse 6 that his beard was plucked off. Walk up to one of the men in this congregation after the service and grab their beard and pull on it. If you don't understand. His beard was plucked off. Isaiah 50, verse 6. His face was beaten by the hands and fists of Roman soldiers. They were not gentlemen. They were hardened men. Soldiers in a foreign country. He was stripped of his garments in public and exposed naked to the world and to the derision of soldiers and faithful following women alike. He went without sleep for an entire night while this was going on. Remember, he had spent the whole day with his disciples. Then he had the Last Supper. Then he spent the whole night being taken from one false trial to another and then scourged and then prepared for crucifixion, which took place in the morning. No sleep. He was forced to carry his own cross. Do you know what weight of a, the cross would have to be in order to support a human body in the air? He had to carry it. He had nails driven through his hands and his feet into that wooden cross in order to suspend him on that cross when it was put jarringly into its hole and left there. And his full body weight tore at the tendons, sinews, bones, and muscle of his flesh. He was extremely thirsty from having his fluids drained from him by the torture, from being so long without sleep and refreshment. He was offered a sedative on the way to the cross. Vinegar mixed with gall. Go look it up. 
is a sedative. You need not wonder or worry what it was for. It was a kindness offered by not so much the soldiers as though they sometimes would, but to men going to crucifixion to put them in a stupor to make the pain more bearable. But I want to tell you something about your beloved and my beloved. He drank the cup of the wrath of God without a sedative. He refused it. Go read it. This is the physical and the obvious sufferings of Jesus Christ. We could take forever to consider what a Roman soldier was like, what hanging with nails through your hands and feet supporting your body weight would be like. But we can't, and we won't this morning. But I have reminded you of what we usually think of when we think of the crucifixion. And though what I have just described is what we would say is horrific, horrible, terrifically horrible, other men have suffered similarly and worse physically. So we need to look at another aspect of the cross of Christ. We sometimes overlook this second point, and that's the non-physical and the less obvious sufferings that he underwent. And by this I mean the emotional and the mental. Do you realize that Jesus Christ wasn't taken by surprise by the crucifixion? He was tortured in his soul, troubled in his soul leading up to it, because guess what? Did he have a vague idea of what was coming? Or perfect knowledge? Do you know how we escape a lot of fear and a lot of trouble and a lot of suffering? Ignorance. We're taken by surprise before we know it, it's over. How would you like to think about it? An example, a pitiful example. If you know there is a dip in the road and you approach that dip in your automobile, doesn't it have a whole lot worse effect than when you hit one by surprise? Do you know some of Well, forget it. I hate illustrations. That's why you've hardly ever heard them from me. A dip, when you take it by surprise, hardly affects you. But when you know it's coming, you're stu- you, au- you automatically, by reflex, prepare your stomach for it, which makes it more dramatic. When you have knowledge of something, you think on it and dwell on it, and it troubles your soul. Let me. I can't turn to all the verses that I have this morning. There'll be an outline for anyone that loves to consider these things. But look at John chapter 12. John chapter 12. There's several places we could go, but I want to point out that as we begin looking at point number two, the mental and emotional suffering and pain Jesus Christ endured for you and for me, he was troubled with the advanced knowledge of it. John 12, 27. Jesus said, Now is my soul troubled. He could say to his disciples, Let not your heart be troubled, but listen to what he had to say. Now my soul is troubled. The soul of Jesus Christ, the most, the, the most perfect union with God, the most perfect man, his soul is troubled. And what shall I say? How could he even describe it? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I unto this hour. 
What a statement. He was troubled and tortured in the inner person, in his feelings, in his thoughts, in his knowledge of what was coming. He was neglected by his friends. His friends who couldn't figure out that Judas Iscariot had already made plans with the chief priests to betray him unto them. Did Jesus know about Judas? Did Jesus know when Judas went to the high priest? Did Jesus know what Judas was going to do? Did Jesus know the price of his betrayal in advance? And no one comforted him. Did Jesus have to sit at a supper and offer him food and fellowship knowing that he was going to betray him? Think of the pain of knowing that and no one to comfort him. He tells all of his friends, one of you shall betray me. And they're all so ignorant of the wicked son of perdition that they couldn't even comfort him. He takes them to the garden. He asks them to watch and pray. Did you know that night at the Last Supper he told them exactly and precisely what was going to happen in the next 24 hours? And they couldn't watch and they couldn't pray with him. Three times he comes back to them and finds them sleeping. These are men who were his close companions for three and a half years, witnessed every word that he spoke and every miracle that he performed, and he had just told them what was going to happen to them, but in his greatest hour of need, they sleep. Have you ever wanted your spouse to be there for you and she slept? What was your need? A little chit-chat? A little comfort? Think of our Savior. Then his closest friend does, one of his closest friends does betray him with a kiss. Sincere? A false kiss of betrayal in the Garden of Gethsemane. What happens to all of his close friends who've been with him for three and a half years, who have benefited like no men have ever benefited from the presence and friendship and fellowship of another? What do they do? With one accord, they run away. Do you mean to tell me they didn't jump to his defense and begin listing off all the good deeds he had done over three and a half years? Haven't you forgotten, did, did they say, of all the people he's healed, of all the goodness he's shown toward our nation? There was no defense on his behalf. We have secret service agents that will lay down their lives to protect the life of our existing president. Enough said. They did not lay down their lives for their Savior, friend, and the Lord of glory, whom they had seen was God in the flesh, whom they knew was the Lamb of God and Emmanuel, God with us. No one, they fled. <clears throat> How would you feel? How did he feel? He had human emotions. Jesus was a man. Sinless. But he was left alone. They put him on trial. They ridicule him. And they mock him. 
and they torture him about his true identity. And I don't, I'm not referring to physical torture. I'm talking about mocking him. He was the king of the Jews. Amen. His father was David. He had a lineage that traced back to David through both Joseph legally and Mary biologically. Do you need it better than that? God had anointed him king. They mocked him. They put a purple robe. They stripped him. They put a purple robe on him and made fun of him. He was the king. He was the king that dwells in a light that no man can approach unto. And if he had let them see that light for one nanosecond of time, they'd have fallen on their feet dead. They'd have fallen on their faces dead. I am not talking about the physical suffering here. I'm talking about how they tortured him, mocked him, reviled him, despised him. He was the king. No one, though they brought many witnesses, would bring up all the good he had done. And has any man ever done so much good? Have all men together combined and squared done so much good? No, it was not brought up. But they brought liars to lie. And even the liars couldn't get their stories to agree to try to condemn him. He who was truth and had never spoken an improper word his entire life. He was totally unappreciated for all the good he had done. He was mocked. He was ridiculed. And then in the midst of all this, he happens to see maybe his closest friend or his second closest friend standing and warming himself near a fire. The friend who had vowed to him, I would never leave you, Lord, even unto death. Deny him three times with oaths and cursing. Your best friend denying you in your greatest hour of need when no one was coming to your defense, what would it do to you? He was dared. Wicked men blindfolded him. Roman soldiers. You can't even imagine a real soldier because all you've seen are American soldiers. They don't compare to Roman soldiers. The hardness and cruelty of their beings and their training. They blindfolded him and would beat him in the face and dare him to prophesy if he was a prophet who had hit him. He was a prophet. He knew their DNA and could quote their DNA backwards. He knew everything about them and their parents and their grandparents. And they dared him. But he had a prophecy to fulfill for you and for me. He would go as a sheep to the slaughter. And when he was reviled, he didn't revile again. Unbelievable. Unspeakable. Undescribable. He was tempted, yet without sin. He was tempted to call 12 legions of angels. You say, how do you know he was tempted? It's easy. Jesus was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. And how would you have been tempted if you could have called 12 legions of angels 
and you would have had someone beating you in your blindfolded face. He was tempted, but he didn't make the call. And I don't mean he was tempted near sin. Not my Savior, not your Savior. But he could have done it. If you had the power and you were being tortured in such a way, you would invoke the power. Absolutely, for sure. He had the power. They would have come so willingly for him. He was rejected by his own nation to an oppressing governor from another nation. Unbelievable. His own people screamed for a Roman oppressor to torture him. Crucify him. We don't want him. His own nation said that of him. He was sacrificed in order to free Barabbas, a proven and convicted murderer and seditioner. How would that, what would that mean to you to all of a sudden be brought forth with a proven murderer and the people's choice? Don't ever forget that. The people's choice will always be Barabbas. Crucify him that is called Christ. He was ridiculed as an imposter that couldn't possibly be known or helped by God. He was slandered over and over by lies rather than all the truth he had spoken. He was despised with spit in his face, though he had sent his son and his reign and fruitful seasons to every one of them. His son rose every day and his reign would come when it was needed and he would put fruitful harvests in the lives of all those men, but they spit in his face. Two enemies, Pilate and Herod, become friends over getting rid of him. He was deserted by the governor who was in a position that he had created for him. A position designed to uphold judgment and righteousness. And he was deserted by him. When he had created the position and preserved the man to his office. We're thinking of his mental and emotional, personal suffering at all these events that took place outside of the physical. He was ignored and not rescued. Where were the thousands that were fed by the loaves and the fishes? Where were the thousands that were healed from all sort of disease and evil spirits? Why didn't there, why wasn't there an insurrection to deliver him? There wasn't even a failed insurrection. No one came because he was a worm and no man despised of the people. He was shamed and tortured mentally and emotionally to suffer and to die naked before his women friends and his mother. Do you know what that would add? To have your mother there witnessing your anguish and your pain and your suffering and your death? He was humiliated by being crucified between two common thieves, the scum of Judea, when he was the Lord of glory. They treated him just like them. And all the while, he's being forsaken 
reviled, rejected, humiliated, despised. He is doing it not because he has a family back home that loves him and is waiting for their soldier boy to return from the foreign war. But he underwent all of that for those who hated him. How do I say think on that? You can't think on it and I can't think on it because it's unspeakable. All we know is it's true. A man will lay down his life for his friends sometimes. But he laid down his life for us when we were his enemies and hating him. No man has suffered such non-physical pain and suffering in such a short period of time. No man. We're digging deeper into the cross of Christ. We've covered two points. The obviously physical sufferings he underwent, then the non-physical sufferings he underwent with the mental and emotional and personal rejection by friends, foes, his own nation, and the total destruction of justice in order to crucify him, to release Barabbas, and to hang him like a common scum criminal between two thieves. Let's go to the next. Let's go down another story. Turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. I want to tell you something that most people don't think about when they think of the crucifixion. We've thought about the physical aspects of dying a crucifixion death at the hand of Roman soldiers. We've considered how he was deserted, rejected, reviled, humiliated, mocked, dared by those around him, close friends betraying him and denying him and fleeing from him, his enemies mocking him when he could have destroyed them so easily. But now we go to a different level of suffering and pain. In Genesis 3.15, we had this incredible prophecy made in the Garden of Eden. So interesting that it took place in a garden. And I will put enmity, God speaking to Satan, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. In that text is the warning given, the prophecy made of the great conflict, not the salvation, because we've got that coming. But I want you to see in that verse the conflict, the enmity between Jesus and Satan and the war that would take place between the two of them where the one would bruise the heel of the other, but that other who is our Savior would bruise the head of Satan and destroy him. As early as Genesis 3, we have a conflict described, and it's a conflict that is invisible to human eyes, but very visible to the eyes of faith. And that is a war that goes on between Jesus Christ and Satan. I want to remind you something about Jesus Christ. He is a man. Could we call it a war if God 
and Satan were at enmity with each other. Could we call that a war? God created him. God could do anything he wanted to with him without any effort. Jesus of Nazareth was a man in union with the word of God, but nevertheless a man. He grew tired, weary, hungry, thirsty, troubled. God doesn't experience any of those things. Don't forget that. We some, sometimes lose Jesus of Nazareth in some mystical cloud of his incarnation. The, car, the incarnation is difficult to explain, but we can explain what the Bible does tell us. He was a man, subject to all the things we're subject to, yet without sin. Now, why does Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12 say that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities? What, what is the title of the office of a prince a palaty? A prince runs a principality and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. Those high places are not high places on earth, but high places in the heavens. God appointed officers of demons. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. That right there tells you it's no earthly office. But we wrestle against spiritual wickedness in high places, the rulers of the darkness of this world. There are demon angel spirits that rule the darkness of this world. And that is why I have a point three. For we're no longer wrestling with flesh and blood. Jesus had flesh and blood sufferings. But there was another wrestling he had, far worse than flesh and blood wrestling. And it was a spiritual conflict between the human spirit and soul of Jesus of Nazareth and Satan who was out to destroy him. We do not properly respect Satan for his power and influence in the world's affairs. He would love to have us ignorant of his devices. Did he accomplish much in the life of Job? Would you have crumbled before Job 3? Would you have crumbled before Job 2? Would you have crumbled with the first messenger that came that you had just lost your family? When would you have crumbled? Satan can do that. How quickly can he do it? As soon as he gets the permission. He can take away everything Job has. In a successive form... Not because he needed time to get it done, but to batter Job with successive bad messages. How about afflicting your body? How fast can he do it? And it's done. You are ill from the crown of your head to the sole of your feet with a miserable disease. We forget what he is able to do. Was he seen? No, he's a spirit. He just did it. I read in 1 Chronicles chapter 21 and verse 1 that Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. David, the man after God's own heart, a man that could see a frightened army when he was a teenage boy standing on one side of a valley, 
the Philistines on the other side, and a nine foot nine inch monster down in the bottom of that valley, and run, run to get out there and meet him and to slay him with a little sling. That man, after God's own heart, when Satan has him for a second, will number Israel. Joab, a wicked nephew of his, begged him not to, saying, the Lord doesn't want you to number Israel. Don't you remember the commandment? We don't need to know how many men we have. The Lord loves to win battles without you trusting in the numbers. What did David do? Number Israel. Why? God let Satan have him for a few minutes. I read in Luke 22 and verse 3, Satan entered into Judas. And what did Judas do as soon as Satan entered into Judas? Went to betray him. Turn to Luke 22 and verse 31. Luke 22 and verse 31. My point right now is that we often do not have the respect, and I don't mean reverence, but I mean appreciation, and I don't mean in a good way, knowledge of the wicked one's devices and his abilities and his powers. I can say right now, though, that he is the dog on a leash of Psalm 22 and verse 30. But brethren, if God puts an extra foot in that leash toward you, you are in trouble. David, Job, was Job a righteous man? Was he a perfect man? Did he fear God with all his heart? Did he eschew evil? Did he get rather arrogant rather quickly? Did Elihu have to correct him severely? Did Elihu get angry at his presumptuous pride? Why? Because Satan had him for just a little while. Satan will bring out what's inside of you because he knows it better than you know yourself. Look at this. Luke 22, verse 31. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed that he can't have you. Does it say that? But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. His faith wouldn't fail completely, but would his faith fail partially? Would his faith fail for a while? Yes. On the basis of what? Because Peter was just an idiot? No. Because Satan said, let me have one of your best friends. Let me have the most outspoken of your friends. Let me have who may have been the most loyal of your disciples, who did, even in his, fierce, in his fearful state, pull a sword in the garden. Let me have him. Let me sift him for a while. And Jesus let Satan have Peter. But I have prayed for thee, Peter, that your faith fail not. And if Jesus prays for our faith, guess what? Your faith will not fail. But he let Satan have him for a while. And what did he do? 
unbelievable. The man who had said, I'll go to death for you. How he swore with oaths and cursing to a maid. Satan. We underestimate how wicked we are and what he can do if he sifts us for a second. Do you believe that Satan has an organized and efficient army? Every man knowing, every spirit knowing his position, responsibilities, loyalty, respect, obedience. Jesus said he appealed to Satan's kingdom as an example of a kingdom not being divided against itself, one that operated very efficiently. In Matthew chapter 4, we have 11 verses that describe a horrendous temptation that took place in the life of Jesus Christ. He was tempted three times, presumptuously, arrogantly, subtly, maliciously by Satan. The Spirit of God took Jesus out in that wilderness, and Satan came after him. Here was a man. I've never had a problem with a man that God let me have. And God let Satan have Jesus for 40 days. Or when he was at the end of those 40 days when he was hungry. And there comes Satan in full force and tries those three deceptions on him, three temptations on him, trying to deceive him with his use of the word of God, trying to tempt him with the kingdoms of the world, trying to appeal to his lust of the flesh to see if there was any desire to make bread at his command out of stones. We are talking about an incredibly intelligent, incredibly articulate, incredibly wise, subtle creature that God made who would know just the right buttons to push to get you or to get anyone. And he went after Jesus Christ without mercy. Three in rapid succession temptations to try to get him to sin. Now look at Luke 4 in light of that. Look at Luke 4. He took the Lord of glory on face to face in the wilderness and did his best showing his spirit. Did he fall at his feet and worship him? No. Or did he try to destroy him with temptations? I want you to read the 13th verse with me. Amen. And when the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a season. Will you please just... Think about those words for a minute. For a season. Now look at Luke 22. Luke 22. There is a warfare going on beyond our visible sight that is incredible, that we know nothing about, very little about, and the world totally ignores. I can turn you to Daniel chapter 10 and verse 20. And there were demon spirits behind the prince, or the ruler of Persia. And there were demon spirits behind the prince of of the, the Medes and the Greeks. And they're described there. They're demonic spirits motivating and directing the heads of nations. And angels come and do battle with them. Michael the archangel and Satan had a fight over the body of Moses. Jude chapter Jude verse 9. We don't see it. These are beings so far above and beyond us. Greater in power and might, the Bible would say. 
But look at Luke 22. And verse 53, Jesus said this to the mob that came out to him in the garden of Gethsemane. When I was daily with you in the temple, ye stretched forth no hands against me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Do you understand that? For three and a half years, Satan was withheld from some of his activities so that Jesus Christ and his disciples and John the Baptist and his disciples preached the gospel. And they cast out devils everywhere. But now Jesus Christ, for you and for me, was entering into a period of time that he called, this is your hour and the power of darkness. There are certain situations where you'd be afraid to enter a dark building. My Savior and your Savior entered a darkness that you have... I don't even know how to tell you. All I know is that the Bible tells me enough that it was there, and it's point three, but I can't tell you how horrible it was. And I pray God by His Spirit will let you know that there was an enemy in there that was so great for a man to take on that he could wrestle in that conflict and sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. Who came and helped him after the temptation in the wilderness? Jesus of Nazareth. Angels. Angels. I'm, just, I'm trying to connect scriptures in your head. That's all I'm trying to do. Angels came and comforted him. Because angels are in a regular conflict with these demon spirits. And they came and comforted Jesus of Nazareth. Did the word of God need any comforting? Come on, brethren, follow with me. Did the word of God need any comfort? No. No. It was Jesus of Nazareth, your Savior and mine. God did not die for you. Jesus of Nazareth died for you. Not imagine. The angels did not come and comfort Jesus in his conflict with the justice of God. The angels came and strengthened Jesus against their arch enemy, who was once their head. And that's Satan. Did you know that it was Jesus had said in John chapter 12 and verse 31, now, now the prince of this world shall be cast out? Do you think Satan knew that? Do you think Satan knew that? Absolutely, he knew that. Now is the judgment of this world. The prince of darkness would be cast out of heaven. I know we've often speculated, why, or would Satan, does Satan know that? Because if he knew it, wouldn't he give up? Not a being that is filled with such malicious hatred and pride, he cannot give up. Look at Revelation 12, 12 and see if it doesn't answer the question that goes through our heads. Surely the devil doesn't know that Jesus was going to defeat him on the cross because if he knew that, he would have given up. Well, what would giving up accomplish for him? His pride won't let him give up. Look at this. Revelation 12, 12. This is a description of what happened to Satan after the crucifixion. He was cast out of heaven in verse 9 and 10. But look at verse 12. Therefore rejoice, ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Because Satan was cast out of heaven, so you that are in heaven rejoice. He's gone. 
Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea. For the devil is come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. His cause is lost, but in his pride and in his malicious hatred, he saw in Jesus Christ that he would exact every bit of punishment and suffering out of him that he could. That is the word of God. We can't, we know very little about it because it's beyond us. There are spirits in this room, both good and evil. There are spirits everywhere in this world, both good and evil. And we do not see them, but the word of God tells us that they are there. As the elect angels cannot believe that God would work salvation for men, the non-elect angels and Satan cannot believe or accept that they are destroyed by a man. Do you know what Satan thinks when he sees a man? I mean a man with two legs that to get from A to B, he's got to walk. It's a joke to him. We are nothing. Deliver my darling from the power of the dog. Do those words mean anything to you this morning of what Jesus did for you and for me? He went into the garden and he asked his disciples to be vigilant, to pray with him, and they could not and would not. And he went and wrestled there with his enemy and prayed to God for strength and was in such an agony that he prayed the more earnestly and sweat, as it were, great drops of blood in that conflict. And angels came and strengthened him. Save me from the lion's mouth, he cries in Psalm 22 that we read this morning. Just as we're told to be vigilant, be sober, for the devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. And in the power of darkness he was out to devour the Lord Jesus Christ. He devoured everyone else, didn't he? Shouldn't someone have laid down their life for Jesus? Shouldn't someone have stood there and started listing all the good things he did? Shouldn't someone have jumped up in that trial and defended the only righteous and innocent man that the world's ever seen? It was the power of darkness. And Jesus entered into it like into an empty, dark, dangerous, black building. Except far worse. I don't even, I'm beyond except to point out some of the scriptures that are used to describe it. Those spirits and Satan has no pity. They did not consider him in his grief. They did not comfort him. They tried to torture him and tempt him. If they could just get him to curse God, like Job's wife tried to get him to curse God. If they could just get him to beg for mercy. If they could just get him to quit. If they could just get him to use his strength to deliver himself. If they could just get him to violate some promise of Scripture. If they could just get him to ask them for help. Could they have defeated the Romans? Easily. No man has ever imagined 
let alone endured, anything close to what I'm describing. There has never been a conflict for a human soul like there was for the soul of Jesus of Nazareth, his arch enemy, Satan, out to destroy him. But brethren, that isn't the greatest pain he suffered. The greatest pain he suffered, as we sang this morning, is the sword that justice gave. And that was the divine disapproval of God. And brethren, here we have a conflict even greater than what we just saw in understanding. The Apostle Paul, who knew, who knew more than any, and said that he did, wrote and said in 1 Timothy 3.16, Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Yeah. So I'm going to call it a mystery. I'll tell you what we do know. He was tempted in all points like as we are without sin, and he was God in the flesh. But to go very far beyond that is very difficult and presumptuous on our part. And I will agree with the psalmist who said, I will not exercise myself in matters too high for me. But Jesus was a man hanging on the cross and had all the sins of all his elect laid to his charge in more than a mere legal transaction. He became sin for us. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquities of us all. God would not have forsaken him if it was a mere legal transaction and those sins hadn't truly been put on the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Lord forsook him. I want to remind you of something about Jesus of Nazareth. From his mother's breasts, no man has ever had a relationship with God like Jesus did. We read that in Psalm 22. I was cast upon thee from my mother's belly. I was made to hope while on my mother's breasts. What would Jesus say about the Father and himself? In John 10 and verse 30, I and my Father are one. In John 17, he would say that over and over and over, how he and his Father were one, and that he prayed for his disciples to be one with them. He had the closest fellowship with God imaginable. He had the presence and the fullness and the joy of God's presence with him at all times. He was always going about to do his Father's will. And his Father was always well pleased with what he did. He would say in John 8, 29, I always do those things that please my Father. When he was baptized, did this ever happen to you when you were baptized? The heavens were opened, and the Father would speak from heaven, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. God was well pleased with him. Have you ever been made happy, joyful, because someone has been pleased with something you did for them? Of course you have. Do you know what kind of joy filled the soul of Jesus of Nazareth, knowing he was pleasing the Father in such a way that he would testify of him before men from heaven? There was no sin, no separation, no days of wondering, like the psalmist does in many of the psalms, where is my God? Why art thou so far from me? 
Why art thou disquieted within me? Jesus had a glorious relationship with his Father. Perfectly righteous, innocent, just. He could commune with God. God could commune with him. He could say to his disciples, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Why then did he die the way that he did? Did you know that many, many martyrs have died deaths more physically painful, like being burned at the stake, and they went out of this life singing and praying? Why didn't Jesus go that way? Why did he have to utter these words? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Those martyrs who died felt the fullest embrace of God at that moment they had ever felt. Jesus felt nothing but being forsaken. Have you considered how martyrs die and how Jesus died? Martyrs were thrilled. You can read account after account after account for the opportunity to suffer and to go and be with their Lord. And they went out singing. Joy in their hearts and on their faces. And my Savior was crying out that he had been forsaken by the God who had never forsaken him. I say this morning to you that that sword from divine justice was the greatest pain ever. You have never been lonely compared to his loneliness. He became sin for us. He was guilty and fearful and lonely and condemned for the first time in his life. Can you remember some time in your life when you were guilty? Guilty! And you knew you were guilty. And if you're not a child of God this morning, and have never been convicted by the Spirit in your soul of guilt, then you don't know what I'm talking about. But have you ever been guilty? Can you imagine the Son of God feeling guilt and shame and defilement and dirty with the sins of you and me on him as God forsook him. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquities of us all. All the guilt of your life, all the guilt of my life, all the guilt of your life, multiplied so many times by the elect family of God, were laid upon Jesus of Nazareth. They weren't laid upon the word of God. They were laid upon Jesus of Nazareth. And God forsook him. And yet upheld him so that he could bear it. Though he was forsaken and fellowship was gone. He suffered guilt and fear and loneliness and condemnation. Not for his sins. Because it was he who knew no sin that was made sin for us. For the first and only time in his life, he suffered those things in infinite quantity and quality, though for a very short period of time. Do you know what God will one day say to the wicked? Depart from me, I never knew you. Guess what he did to Jesus of Nazareth? He departed from him. He suffered the equivalent 
of an eternity in hell for you and for me in a few hours of time. Absence of the one source of fellowship, the one source of truth, the one source of righteousness, the one true loyal, infinite spirit that he had known all his life was gone. Why hast thou forsaken me? We can't even weakly imagine the spiritual pain and suffering of this part of the cross. Only for a soul that has experienced the heights of having God very near to him and the depths of feeling very guilty and deserted by God, like the psalmist. If we were to magnify that billions of times, maybe, we could weakly imagine what he underwent. But to be forsaken by the God that was in such close union with him from his mother's breast to the age of 33 and a half and to be alone on that cross was horrible. And to be guilty and condemned by that perfectly righteous being for you and for me so that we would not have to suffer being forsaken by that perfectly righteous and glorious being so that we would not have to enter the power of darkness and fight Satan like he did so that Satan is cast out of heaven where he can no longer accuse us before God because who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect because Jesus paid the full price and fought all aspects of the great enemy death and defeated it and defeated sin. And it's a glorious gospel that Paul preached. I stopped you at the third verse or the fourth verse because we didn't want to read on because the next verse is for another time and it may not be too many days away when we consider the glorious victory as he came out of that tomb and destroyed death and proved it that he had vanquished Satan, sin, condemnation, and death to all the world. Brethren, this is what our Savior did for us. This is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Paul gloried in, that Jesus would undergo such physical sufferings, such non-physical sufferings, such a battle with Satan and his demons, and such judgment from God for sin. I hope this morning that you're thankful for what he did Amen. for you. Amen. And what a glorious Savior he is. Amen. I love Galatians 6.14. I would love to quote it to you again, have you read it again. But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray your souls to glory in that and nothing else. Let everything else fade away and disappear and be nothing to you but glory in that. But I also want to say what Solomon would write in his great song, This is my beloved. This is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Is he your beloved? And is he your friend? This Jesus of Nazareth who died for us and who now sits at the right hand of God Almighty as our Savior and our intercessor. What will you do for Him? He's done all for you. Amen. Will you love Him? Amen. Will you believe Him? Amen. Will you be baptized in His name? 
What a simple way to show that we love Him, believe Him, and want to obey Him. Will you testify of Him to others? Or are you ashamed of the name Jesus Christ or Jesus of Nazareth? Will you crucify your flesh for Him? Will you have a crucifixion in your life where you'll crucify your flesh for Him? He was crucified for you. May Jesus Christ be praised. Amen. Sing a couple more hymns with me now. Amen. Please, Brother Newell, come and lead us in a couple more hymns before we close this morning.